0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Don Winslow, author of the new novel, City on Fire. Don is the author of 22 acclaimed, award-winning international bestsellers, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Force and the Border, and the number one international bestseller, The Cartel, The Power of the Dog, Savages, and The Winter of Frankie Machine. Stephen King, a writer you may have heard of, wrote about City on Fire. City on Fire by Don Winslow. Only one word for this book. Superb. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jess. Sure, absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your new novel, City on Fire, how would you describe the novel?
1: You know, it's the first of a trilogy. Uh, first of, obviously, three books. And it's the story about a guy named Danny Ryan, who's sort of a minor league uh, criminal uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, and how uh, a war starts between two criminal syndicates, and he's forced to fight and eventually become a leader.
0: And do you remember the
1: original idea or impetus that led you to write City on Fire? Yeah, I sure do. It's, It's the Greek and Roman classics. Uh, I started to read those as an adult, and it struck me that there were certain incidences in contemporary crime in real life that were very reminiscent of incidents from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I thought, gosh, could I somehow merge these two big ideas, take these stories and these characters from the classics, but write them into standalone uh crime books, modern crime books, that would stand without any knowledge of the classics and yet still draw from that inspiration.
0: Well, I know that you've been writing uh, a number of novels about uh, the U.S. border and and uh, the things that are going on there with um, drug trafficking, et cetera. How did it feel coming back to Providence from having written those novels?
1: Boy, a different world, huh, Jeff? <laughs> you know, uh, I was uh, 23 years on the drug beat uh, on the border and and lived, you know, most of the year uh, very close to the Mexican border. So going to Rhode Island was, for one thing, going home. I was raised there. I left there when I was 17 to, to travel the world, and I have. And so going back there, but also back in time for this first book, back to 1986, 1987, a completely different world, a, a completely different cultural bio, uh, a different language, sometimes literally, you know. So, yeah, very, very different experience. Well,
0: I, I know reading some information about the, the novel and the trilogy, as you mentioned, that this is a story that you have kind of come back to uh, multiple times over the years in terms of writing it. What kept you coming back to this story?
1: Maybe it's a salmon swimming upstream, huh? You know, maybe it's this um, either subconscious or conscious desire to go home. Uh, I've never written about uh, my hometown before. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not young and uh, (laughs) I've uh, I've avoided it. You know, and I I think that at some point, you know, I I made this decision or it made me to to start writing about my youth and, and write about that town. Uh, well, so, yeah, please.
0: No, I, I was just going to say, I mean, in terms of crime, I mean, Providence is is a great location. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> You're in Western Mass, right?
0: I You're, am. I
1: am. Yeah. I used to live in Riverton, Connecticut, right, right below the Mass border. Great Barrington, those places all the time. Huh. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, Providence has a famous or I suppose infamous crime history. So it was a natural you know, and having grown up there and grown up in an era where the the mafia was strong and some of the other criminal syndicates were strong, it was very evocative for me and a very natural thing to write about.
0: That's great. Well, I know that your first several novels were were um somewhat traditional p i novels, but then you made a big shift when the Death and Life of Bobby Z was published. I'm just curious about your Um, if you're, you know, reflecting about your own evolution as a writer, what led you from those first books to the death and life of Bobby Z? Uh,
1: geography. Uh, I was still, you know, I was seven published books into my writing career before I could quit my day jobs. And so I was increasingly coming out here to California. I was a private investigator to do cases and, uh, I was commuting, uh, between Orange County, you know, south of L.A., about an hour or so, uh, to downtown L.A. on a long case, and I'd take a commuter train. And uh, one day I just, I was really bored with myself writing. And I thought, man, if I'm bored, I can't imagine how the reader feels. And so I threw everything out, and I started to write in the present tense instead of the past tense. And it, it was like a new world for me, writing about California, about these new locales, but in the present tense, you know, writing in the past tense for me is like looking down at a table and describing what I saw. Writing in the present tense is like flipping that table on its end and it's just in your face. You know, every new incident, every new moment is, is very real and very new. And so it was a, a revolution for me, both in terms of place and in ter- terms of style. That's great. Well, you mentioned that City on Fire is
0: set in the 1980s in Providence, Rhode Island. I know that you do that in the past with your novel set um, around the U.S. border that you've done um, tons of research. What kind of research did you do for the new
1: novel? It's extremely different. Uh, I don't mean to be glib, but walk out the door, you know, <laughs> uh, we uh, I grew up there. And uh, we lived there about half the year now, not in Providence, but in a little town down on the coast, although Rhode Island's, you know, so small, it sounds funny to say another part of the state, but uh, down on the beaches and in these fishing towns. And so really, it was a matter of, of just walking around and driving around. Of course, you can do that. You can't get in the time machine. You know, memory had a, a place in this. But the other major part of the research was in the classics was going back to the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Greek uh, tragic dramas and reading and rereading and rereading them until I I had a sense of that poetry and until I could, this sounds very pretentious, but marry some of that classic poetry to the poetry that I hear in the crime genre's best writing.
0: And... I'm curious, what was your writing process when you were working on the novel? Did you have the story in mind? Or are you someone who, who writes an extensive outline? How does that work for you?
1: Yeah. I don't outline at all. <laughs> I think I'm still traumatized by my eighth grade English class with Mrs. Hay, you know, where you know, we outlined everything. No, I uh, on a serious level, I I don't outline because I want to be open to surprises. And I know myself well enough to know that if I outlined, I, I would stick slavishly to the outline. And I don't want to do that. So these classic stories, because basically it's the story of this guy, Danny Ryan, and it follows the story of Aeneas through the, the Iliad and the Aeneid and, and other characters as well. So that was sort of mapped out for me The the challenge was to find what are the modern equivalents of some of these incidents. I mean, you know, for instance, there's the Trojan horse. Well, you can't have a Trojan horse in 1986 in Providence. That's just stupid. But what what could tempt the Trojans to bring something in that would eventually destroy them? And, and my answer in this book was heroin. It it just so happens to be a coincidence. That- Sick of being upsold at gyms.
3: in uh, in the
1: Northeast for heroin, of course. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: great parallels. Well, I I know that um, you're very politically active on Twitter, including creating um, several political videos running up to the last U.S. presidential election. Do you ever find the kind of vitriolic and sad state of affairs of U.S. politics um, in today? Do you ever find that distracting you from your own novel writing?
1: Uh, If I live, yeah. Uh, and absolutely. how do you not let it? <laughs> uh, it's just, yeah. Uh, it's a matter of mental discipline. You know, it's a matter, I, I guess, a better word for it would be compartmentalization, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that I, I listen, I, 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 I've always treated writing as a job. It's a job I love and the job I've always wanted to have and the job I'm so grateful to have. A job, though, and so I start at a certain time and I finish at a certain time, like most people's jobs. And so when I sit down to write, I know that's what I am going to do, and and I, and during those hours, I'm not going to be distracted by the the politics or the state of affairs or or anything else. Sure.
0: Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels?
1: Yeah, you know, look. Um, I think we have to be realistic. Uh, writers write before it's a noun, it's a verb. So the first thing I'd say, but I know this is going to sound glib and superficial, is right. But it's hard to find the time to do that, you know, if, if this is not your full-time gig. And, and for seven books of mine, it was not. Um, and so what I say to young writers is set realistic goals. When when I was trying to write my first book, I said, "Okay, five pages a day, no matter what," and I managed to do that. Uh, that might be unrealistic, you know, if you have a job and maybe young kids at home and all of that. Maybe it's one page a day, but if you look at the math, uh, if you write a page a day, in about a year, you have a book. It's a matter of writing that one page a day, so. What I, what I try to encourage people to do is to set a goal that's doable. Don't set a goal you can't do because it just get discouraged and you'll fail, you know. Set a goal that you really think you can, you can stick to and then stick to it. And, and you'll be surprised how the, the paragraphs of the sentences and the pages add up.
0: That's great. Well, what novels have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Uh, yesterday, I was sitting down reading Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, and I really enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, I I tend to read more in the classics, you know. Uh, a couple of months ago, though, I, I picked up uh, The Godfather, Puzo's classic. You know, uh, the movies were so great, we tend to forget how great the book was, you know. Uh, I would say for New Englanders, a, a must is... Uh, George Higgins, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Uh, you know, a Massachusetts book that I think is the best crime novel ever written.
0: That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels?
1: Yeah, I'm on com, I think, you know, and then I'm on Twitter if they want to read my political stuff. (laughs) I'm uh, pretty easy to find, I think.
0: That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with best selling novelist Don Winslow, author of the new novel, City on Fire. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Don, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Oh man, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate
0: it. Say hi to Western Mass. I will. I will. Thanks a lot. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from City on Fire by Don Winslow. Read by Ari Fliakos. Available From Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold.
2: Danny Ryan watches the woman come out of the water like a vision emerging from his dreams of the sea. Except she's real. And she's going to be trouble. Women that beautiful usually are. Danny knows that. What he doesn't know is just how much trouble she's really going to be. If he knew that, knew everything that was going to happen, he might have walked into the water and held her head under until she stopped moving. But he doesn't know that. So the bright sun striking his face, Danny sits on the sand out in front of Pasco's beach house and checks her out from behind the cover of his sunglasses. Blonde hair, deep blue eyes, and a body that the black bikini does more to accentuate than conceal. Her stomach is taut and flat, her legs muscled and sleek. You don't see her 15 years from now with wide hips and a big ass from the potatoes in the Sunday gravy. The woman comes out of the water, her skin glistening with sunshine and salt. Terry Ryan digs an elbow into her husband's ribs. What? Danny asks, all mock innocent. I see you checking her out, Terry says. They're all checking her out. Him, Pat and Jimmy, and the wives too, Sheila, Angie, and Terry. Can't say I blame you, Terry says, that rack. Nice talk, Danny says. Yeah, with what you're thinking? Terry asks. I ain't thinking nothing. I got you nothing for you right here, Terry says, moving her right hand up and down. She sits up on her towel to get a better view of the woman. If I had boobs like that, I'd wear a bikini too. Terry's wearing a one-piece black number. Danny thinks she looks good in it. I like your boobs, Danny says. Good answer. Danny watches the beautiful woman as she picks up a towel and dries herself off. She must put in a lot of time at the gym, he thinks. Takes care of herself. He bets she works in sales. Something pricey. Luxury cars or maybe real estate or investments. What guy is going to say no to her, try to bargain her down, look cheap in front of her? Isn't going to happen. Danny watches her walk away. Like a dream you wake up from and you don't want to wake up, it's such a good dream. Not that he got much sleep last night, and now he's tired. They hit a truckload of Armani suits, him and Pat and Jimmy McNeese, way the hell up in Western Mass. Piece of cake, an inside job Peter Moretti set them up with. The driver was clued in. Everyone did the dance so no one got hurt. But still it was a long drive and they got back to the shore just as the sun was coming up. That's okay, Terry says, lying back on her towel. You let her get you all hot and bothered for me. Terry knows her husband loves her. And anyway, Danny Ryan is faithful like a dog. He don't have it in him to cheat. She don't mind he looks at other women as long as he brings it home to her. A lot of married guys, they need some strange every once in a while, but Danny don't. Even if he did, he'd feel too guilty. they have even joked about it. You'd confess to the priest, Terry said. You'd confess to me. You'd probably take an ad out in the paper to confess. She's right, Danny thinks as he reaches over and strokes Terry's thigh with the back of his index finger. Signaling that she's right about something else. That he is hot and bothered. That it's time to go back to the cottage. Terry brushes his hand away, but not too hard. She's horny too, feeling the sun, the warm sand on her skin, and the sexual energy brought by the new woman. It's in the air. They both feel it. Something else too. Restlessness? Danny wonders. Discontent? like this sexy woman comes out of the sea and suddenly they're not quite satisfied with their lives I'm not
3: Danny thinks Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant